Hello everyone, I'm Lydia. And I'm Sara. And this is Hitchcock Happy Hour's Spooky Season Special. Where for the entire month of October, we'll be discussing the evolution of horror by analyzing some of our favorite spooky movies. One autumnal cocktail at a time. Cheers! Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Hitchcock Happy Hour. I'm Lydia Jordan. And I'm Sarah Shaw, and we have a super special guest on a super special episode today. Today we have Austin Adams joining us to talk about the epic Fear Street trilogy. Hi, Austin. Hey. (laughs) Hello. Um, Well, thank you so much for joining us and being here and talking about these movies. Um, We're really excited to have you. I actually, so Austin and I went to law school together in D.C. Did we though? But plot twist, we did not, we did not know each other in law school. So we're both pretty, we're both unsure that we actually went to law school together. I mean. It's fine. (laughs) It's, who's to say? It's fine. Um, we blame our law school for keeping us apart this entire time because we, uh, we bonded after law school because he started listening to Hitchcock Happy Hour and that's how we became friends. <laughs> and it's just all, it's all, um, just the rest is history, I guess. <laughs> so yeah, he's, he's here to talk about, um, the Fear Street trilogy, which he, he actually, peer pressured me into watching that's why I watched these movies oh my god shut up shut up and I haven't heard the end of it for the last like literally three months (laughs) look I know good movies when I see them your fault Austin and they need to be seen he's right yeah and I and so I don't know if Lydia appreciates that because I haven't shut up about it for the past three months but it's literally just been your entire Instagram story feed is just like obscure memes about fear street (laughs) (laughs) well I mean but we love it. And where and where do I get those memes from? Austin Adams. I didn't come here to be attacked, okay? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, you oh didn't God. know that that's what we do here? <laughs> that's the theme. <laughs> Slashing, attacking, all, all of the above. Especially but during Austin, spooky season. <laughs> yeah, well, speaking of that, Austin is a huge spooky kid, just like the rest of us. So what, you're, you're a big film guy, so what kind of got you into, into film and into horror movies specifically? Because you're, you're a big horror genre person. Yeah, so um, like most kids, I ended up at like seven watching, I want to say Jeepers Creepers. And I was scared for the next two days, did not sleep. It was a terrible time. Um, Since that day, I have still not watched that movie again. And it really turned me off of horror movies. But uh, I got to college, and I don't know what happened. I got bored. So I started watching them all over again. Um, Horror movies, not Jeepers Creepers. It's on the no-no list. Uh, But (laughs) I just realized that, you like... Everybody has one movie on their no-no Exactly. Um, but I realized that, like, oh, maybe horror is, like, actually kind of interesting. Yeah, so basically, um, I started watching 80s horror movies, uh, slash, like, late 70s slashers, and I was like, oh, these are, like, kind of good. Uh, actually, these are really good. These, this genre as a whole is kind of just slept on. Uh, why did no one tell me about this? And then I watched, um, Sleepaway Camp, which is severely underrated as a horror movie, um and it like took on some really progressive political topics uh but without meaning to do so and i was like maybe horror movies are actually a gold mine of like uh serious progressive political talk and so i watched more and more and then i realized like 
Some of them, yes, but like overall, it's just a great genre. Everyone loves a little scare. So now I'm here and I don't watch anything that isn't horror. Yeah, I mean, I also came to it like super late in the game. Like I definitely didn't like them. Like growing up, I never watched horror movies. I thought they were really gory. Like I didn't like a lot of blood and stuff like that. And I mean, I've I've seen like the classics, like the universal classics, like Frankenstein and and Dracula, like, I'd seen those, but I never liked slasher films, like, I thought they were too much, and then I, it, like, really started with Fear Street, like, I actually watched these, and I was like, this is a, these are, like, great movies, <laughs> and, like, they, they talk about, you know, they have commentary on a lot of social issues that are really important and universal, and then, you know, I went back and kind of did the classic 70s, 80s, 90s slasher films, and I found that those topics were just really, like, timeless, and they show up in all of them, and the evolution is is really cool, and I think as a genre, it's like severely underrated now. I'm I'm definitely a horror stan these days. We love to see it. <laughs> um, but I don't know what what about? I mean, we'll talk a lot about it, but like, what about like initially about these movies really impressed you, and what was it that left an impression? Because I remember you telling me like these are three of your favorite movies to come out this year that you'd seen this year. Yeah, so I think Fear Street just really. Um, went ahead and took all the good things of nostalgic horror movies that we love, bundled it up into, like, a modern horror franchise, and then gave it out to us. So, you know, like, we have so many classic witch themes or, like, slasher themes or uh, things of the late 90s. And so, you know, I thought it was a great take without uh, recycling all of those stereotypical ideals. They really brought some freshness to it. and so I just, I fell in love. It was also beautifully shot. I don't, I don't know why they thought uh, they had to go so hard, but they did. And I loved it. They went hard and it worked for them. <laughs> it did. And we, we will talk about it. And well, yeah, so I think I'm really excited to get into this, but obviously we've built it up so much and we've left people hanging with the most, one of the most important parts of this episode. Lydia, what are we drinking today? <laughs> I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> Today we are drinking an Applejack Sour. Uh, this is something they mention in the movie and it is delicious. So it's Applejack brandy, lemon juice, orange juice, a little bit of maple syrup because it's autumn after all. Uh, some bitters, shake it all up and garnish with some nutmeg. Lydia and I... This is delicious by the way. <laughs> It's delicious, and Lydia and I both followed the recipe. <laughs> For once. We actually did it. We did it, you guys. <laughs> we did it, you guys, and it is so good, but what Lydia and I also did at the same time was we thought this had apple juice in it because neither of us can read. <laughs> Apparently. And we bought a <laughs> giant bottle apple of apple juice. I literally have, like, this big thing of apple juice, and I was at Trader Joe's, and my husband was like, do you need more apple juice? Like, why do you keep buying it? I was like, I need it for a recipe, I swear, and then I, I pull it out, so excited, I have the apple juice, I have all the ingredients it doesn't even have apple juice and classic steven is just in his he is probably just like yet again no, i told you so. he will never know about this like <laughs> how you keep a marriage it. alive <laughs> um well yeah this is a super tasty cocktail i will say there's one little bit i deviated i do have an aversion to nutmeg so i did use cinnamon as my garnish in this one i'll allow it 
We all we are all allowed one aversion to a winter spice, as Lydia has aptly pointed out before. Yeah, mine is clove, yours is nutmeg, you know, it's allowed. Austin, you can have an aversion to a winter spice if you want as well. Absolutely none. I love the winter spices. They are all top tier. You're both wrong. Wow, okay, he came at that very, all right. very prepared. <laughs> I'll see myself out. Hi everyone, this is my podcast um, now. Um <laughs> Yeah, honestly. Well, um, with that, we are going to be sipping on this delicious cocktail and running through these amazing uh, movies. We're going to be talking about all three because they are all connected. It is one overarching story over the course of three films. So let's jump in, shall we? The Fear Street Trilogy is a horror, suspense, thriller, supernatural, historical drama trilogy released on Netflix in July of 2021. It literally expands like eight different genres perfectly. Like it, it uses elements of so many different genres beautifully, I think. And um, yeah, absolute chef's kiss. So shout out, shout out to the writing. But um, yeah, it was released on in, on Netflix uh, in July of 2021. It was directed and co-written by Lee Janiak. It's broken into three parts. So part one is in 1994, part two 1978, and part three is in 1666. It has um, a phenomenal cast. Everyone in this was cast perfectly, and every actor in this is amazing. As you guys can tell, we will not be criticizing a single thing about this movie during this podcast because it's perfect. Um, but it stars Kiana Madeira as Dina Johnson, Olivia Scott Welch as Sam Fraser, Benjamin Flores Jr. as Josh, Julie Rewald as Kate, Fred Hetchinger as Simon, Ashley Zuckerman as Sheriff Nick Good, Jillian Jacobs as C. Berman, Sadie Sink as Ziggy Berman, Emily Rudd as Cindy Berman, and Daryl Britt Gibson as Martin. So Martin is, uh an absolute icon in this movie in my opinion he's one of the best characters king <laughs> like shout out to martin we love him um so yeah the cast is phenomenal i think everyone is is really really well cast in this film so the movies were inspired by the fear street books written by rl stein who's the writer of the goosebumps uh book series the movies are a pretty loose adaptation i mean i think they pull more like certain ideas themes and some different characters um from all of the books they don't follow like specific plot lines of any of the books though which I think is really kind of a good idea because it was like they used these ideas that there wasn't a lot of pressure to kind of like do certain plots of the books like in this perfect way where they had to like if they deviated people would be upset so they kind of just pulled more like the themes and kind of vibe of the books really as opposed to anything else but R.L. Stein loved these movies. He praised them, which is like really nice because we, we don't hear that a lot no. with book to movie adaptations of horror stories. Um, we, we were talking about this with I Know What You Did last summer and the author, I think it was I Know What You Did last yeah, summer. Yeah, it was. She was literally yeah. like so upset she with was the fact that they made her beautiful it. book into a horror, like a slasher film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was, like, really upset. But uh, R.L. Stein, like, he often visited the set and, like, visited with the actors and, and the director. He never gave any notes or directions or anything. He just, like, was really excited about the process and let somebody he was, was just making vibing. the story. Just so <laughs> yeah, happy to be there. Yeah, he was literally just vibing. So we love a king. <laughs> um, but the background of the movie is, like, really interesting. And I, I'd love to um, get your guys' opinion on this because I think it's it's super fascinating how it ended up coming out on Netflix and 
and the way that it came out, which I think really, um, it helps the kind of, like, punch of the movie and, like, the plot of the movie, like, really, like, hit home a lot. But it was actually, originally, part one was supposed to be released exclusively in theaters in June of 2020. So it actually was filmed, and so all three of the movies were filmed simultaneously, and they were filmed in 2020, 2019 and 2020. The idea was that they were just going to be, like, released in the movie theaters, like a normal movie. Um, they didn't have a contract with Netflix or anything, and it was just going to be released, like, one movie per year. Like, kind of, like, any movie trilogy, like Lord of the Rings or something. Um, but that was delayed because of COVID, and all the movie theaters shut down, so they didn't release them in theaters. And uh, the production company, Churn In Entertainment, ended their distribution deal with 20th Century Fox kind of around that time. And they signed a new distribution deal with Netflix. And part of the deal was that Netflix wanted exclusive rights to distribute these movies. And that was like part of their new um, distribution deal that, that they negotiated with Netflix. And so Netflix acquired the full rights to distribute the Fear Street movies as exclusively Netflix originals. And so then Netflix came up with the idea instead of releasing them one per year to just release them one one per week like a TV show. And Oh and my god. They I know. think it actually is like way better of an idea. Like I think that worked way more in their advantage. I don't know what you guys think about that, but I, I think it's way better <laughs> like to do it that way. I mean brilliant. I mean, they they know us now, especially in 2020 and 2021, where all we do is, well, personally, all I do is watch TV and movies, because what else am I going to do? But, like, brilliant. Like, I think having to wait a year in the culture that we live in now is, like, honestly unacceptable and, like, very frustrating. <laughs> like, yeah, I think it was a great idea. Um, also, from, like, a viewer's perspective there's a lot that happens in these movies. So waiting a year to try and remember how to tie the story together, like, yeah, I could rewatch it, but, like, there's something about that feeling that you get for watching it the first time and being so antsy and excited to see the next one, and it's right there. Like, I don't have to wait. I don't have to be patient. Like, feed my uh, poor qualities as a human of impatience. Let me have this now. And I love that they did that. We're millennials and we want to binge. Like, I don't really know what else there is to say but I think that's a good point Austin that like there's a lot these movies have so many layers and there are also so many parallels between like each movie that and scenes and things like that happen in each movie and I think like that that would kind of you wouldn't get that thread if you didn't get to watch them so quickly one after another so I don't know I mean I thought it was really cool like they released it kind of as like a like a mini series almost as opposed to films like they this easily could have been broken up into, like, a TV show. I mean, if they, they could have easily done that. But it, releasing them as a miniseries but in film form I think is really unique. And we haven't really seen anything like that. And I think it just – I think it was super successful. I think it was a really good idea, especially for this specific story. It worked really well because each movie ends on, like, a total cliffhanger as well. <laughs> and you just, like, want to know what happens next. Yeah, if I had to so. wait a year with those cliffhangers, I would have gone insane. Yeah. Like, I would have gone been insane. so pissed. <laughs> would have been, Literally. like, Ruby Lane status, like, <laughs> coming for you. <laughs> singing, singing some old-timey song and, like, like a straight razor, <laughs> like, give me the next part. <laughs> Actually, though, if you were to be any of the killers, you would absolutely be Ruby Lane. That's, like, not even a question. It's the nicest thing anyone's that. ever said to me. <laughs> 
Um, well, I just, before we kind of get into the synopsis and then jump into the analysis, I wanted to give a really quick shout out to the cinematographer and editor of this movie because the cinematography and editing are unmatched, as Austin pointed out already. So cinematography was by Caleb Heyman and editing was done by Rachel Goodlit Katz. Um, shout out to them. Incredible. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Caleb. Yes, Rachel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of like... One thing that I noticed re-watching them right before we were doing this was I think that they made very specific decisions in lighting each movie to set the mood of that specific decade or, like, time period that they were in. And I think it was pretty clear, like, the 90s is, like, drenched in neon very purposely. 70s is, like, very, like, lots of bright, like, orange, greens, like, outdoorsy colors, and then the 1600s is very neutral. We love it. Everything about the lighting was Do great. you love wool and natural dye? Hell yeah, here you go. <laughs> <laughs> like, but they did it really well, and I think kind of to, like, parallel the editing, like, of, of you know, the, the, the lighting editing, the cinematography, like, the camera work was very specific, Per, per movie like they they definitely were like a little bit more cine- like kind of like epic in the first one the second one is very like filmed as a b camp slasher movie and the third one is very like steady cam like they're running around and the camera's like bouncing around with them and it's very like it feels very like you're in the story in the third one and so I think that was very purposeful and I think that it worked really well and it made the movies different in a way like, from one another that um, you don't really see in, in trilogies and series, like, film series and sagas. So I thought that was very interesting. Yeah, I think it's actually one of those things where if it were not for these specific choices, this movie wouldn't have been nearly as good. I definitely agree with that. And I think that stuff kind of stands out. And you can tell, like, how much care was taken um, with the movies. And we'll talk about that. There are, there are homages to other slasher films that came before it and other horror mo- movies that came before it, like, left and right. <laughs> These movies, like, literally everything is an homage to something else, which I love. I think it was done really well. I don't think it was a ripoff. I think it was done very much to be, like, we want to kind of pay tribute to the slasher movies that came before, and they did it in a very fresh way. Um, so, yeah, I thought, you know, overall really really well done in terms of editing and cinematography but the plot is super super intricate in this so I think instead of going through like a plot summary we'll talk about that more with the analysis but we'll do kind of like a high level um synopsis for the overarching story so the overarching story centers around a group of teens who work to end a 300-year-old curse of the notorious witch Sarah Fear as they slowly uncover the root of a centuries-old disparity between the towns of Sunnyvale and Shadyside. The story starts in 1994, which is in part one. Part two is set in 1978 as a character recounts her time at Camp Nightwing during the Camp Nightwing massacre, furthering the plot that leads to part three, which ends up being set in 1666, where Dina, uh, the main character of the of the trilogy, is transported back into Seraphir's body, basically, to uncover what actually happened um, and why she was hanged. So that's kind of the overarching plot. It brings her back to 1994, which is where we end, end the series. Um... So yeah, that's that's kind of the overarching idea of the movie. So I think with that, we can kind of just jump into the analysis. I know we usually do a, a more intricate plot summary, but we'll, I think it'll come out as we 
as we talk through the movies, so. But I think, um, I think it'll probably be a good idea just to kind of, like, as we've been doing, going through kind of our evolution of horror, um, slasher movies, to just kind of talk about the elements of horror, suspense, fantasy, and period drama that we see in these movies kind of on a high level, so the genres that we see present, and I don't know if you guys, like, agree or disagree, but I definitely thought this was, like, obviously a slasher movie. I think there are elements of, like, psychological thriller, clearly elements of, like, the camp story. It's a, there's period drama stuff, and also, like, it's fantasy as well, so I think they blended elements of these genres so well that it didn't really feel, like, it, like, I could see that going wrong, like, it could be too much, in in one story but I think they did it really well in this where it felt quite effortless to me yeah no I agree with you I think it you think it's gonna be one thing and then it becomes another and I think that they do that so well where the whole time it kind of keeps you guessing like what exactly is it that I'm watching and to your point each of the different parts of the trilogy have kind of a different feel like second one is very slashery you know I, I think the psychological thriller really comes out in the third one um with the big plot twist which I'm sure that we'll talk a lot about but um it, it does a good job of blending those lines I think in a way blurring the lines where I think if it could have been done very poorly like just a little bit off and it wouldn't have been like believable or it wouldn't have been you wouldn't have been so immersed and connected to the characters and plot I agree I mean I don't know Austin like what do you think do you think the development of that and the characters was done well I mean I think that with three movies it gives them room to kind of expand and, and take time with that but I don't know what what your thought is on that I mean I think it's no secret that I absolutely love these movies so it's hard for me to find any negatives about this at all, but what I will say is that um, for being so cross genre of a series of movies, they still somehow always tied it back to a traditional horror theme, and that's what I think I love most about the story. And that um, I feel like we've all seen movies where they try and do that, and it's just off and it feels wrong, and you get lost in the story. But this one, it's like um, almost like watching a kid kind of, uh, explore a toy store where they're seeing so many different things, but, like, they are still just happy to be there, and it works for them, and I think that's how this turned out. It just worked. We can't necessarily explain why, but something that Janiac did was just yeah, perfect. Yeah, I definitely agree. I agree, and I, yeah, I think, like, to your point, like, obviously the main overarching, like, genre is, it's a slasher film, like, that's definitely, like, the point and and I think you know it sets the tone very early like right from the first scene it's literally the first scene is literally an homage almost carbon copy of the first scene of Scream <laughs> like yes. it's literally the same exact scene yep like it, but it's it's so different at the same time I mean I I love the first scene of this movie it's it just gets you in the mood so fast into this movie and it's it's just like it's perfect but then the rest of the movie is just not about anything in the first scene it's just it's so great yeah it was like when it was set in the mall I was like what is this movie going to be like this is crazy and then I mean again it just takes like a wild turn you're like oh okay yeah, well, because I was like, oh, cool, Maya Hawk is going to be, like, the main... I love her in Stranger Things. I was like, oh, cool, it's Maya Hawk, and then she gets Drew barrymore <laughs> Like, But I think what's cool and why 
it's not, you know, like an intentional ripoff or whatever of Scream is like clearly they're paying an homage, but what they do different is that the first scene of Scream sets up the movie of, of the plot of Scream. I mean, it's like the whole point is unmasking Ghostface. In this one, they unmask the school mask guy like r- right in that scene. I mean, that you know who it is and then he gets killed in the first scene too and you're just like, "Oh, this where are they going with this? Like, this isn't what this movie's going to be about at all. But it also is at the same time. So I think that it was kind of a cool, like, fresh take on um, kind of, like, that idea that Scream kind of set up of just, like, introducing this person that you need to unmask, but also killing off the most, like, famous person in the movie, which is iconic. So, yeah, I, I loved that. But... Another genre that I think, obviously this is kind of a subgenre, but I think that this, um, this one for me was more important than I think the slasher elements, but I think they all play, obviously interweave, but I think like mm, this movie kind of at the heart of it is a romance. Like I, I found it like to be a romance drama. I mean, like that's what it is. And I think the center of the movie is like, what drives the main character is this love story that spans all three movies and and it spans all the way into the 1600s because I think like the Dina and Sam love story is developed through the Sarah Fear and Hannah Miller love story like there's it's very purposeful that they're played by the same actors and I think it's very much like part of the same story and I think that kind of kind of brings home the idea that like at the center of this it's the love between these two characters that kind of drives the entire plot. So I, f- I thought that was quite beautiful as well. I thought it was too, because I don't think that that's something we necessarily see often in slasher films. I think I Know What You Did Last Summer has one of the more like full-bodied relationships that we see. But I think this one, again, it it like reinvents the final girl in a new way where they have this like deep love at the heart of it that keeps them pure and it keeps them grounded. Like, and I think that that's a really cool new way to look at that trope. Um, but it gives you something I think so much more than a lot of these slasher films do, which, you know, a lot of them have kind of these stereotypes that they play into. And I think that's definitely that that still exists in this film, but at the same time, like you're seeing this really loving and complicated relationship, um, and I just think it's it's so special to see that. I think for me, when it comes to the relationship, it's like the consistent piece throughout the movies that really brings it together. And I like the way that they made this. I do agree that romance is like a really big subgenre theme. But I really like that they did it without pushing it in your face. Like this wasn't like, hey, look at these two kids. They're, they're a couple. They're having sex. They're doing all this stuff. It's really just like, hey... Th- these two happen to be a a couple and they care about each other, but now they're trying to figure out this massive storyline. And so it's not like um, I went in and then had to sit through like, oh great, I'm watching two people fall in love. This is like, oh, I'm watching two people fall in love, but like, it's because they're fucking wild. Uh, This is great, I love it. And so I think they did a really good job with making it romance without being overbearing. I totally agree. Like, I think this is also, like, in terms of representation and film of this kind of romance, like, I think that this is how you do it. Like, this is the this is the right way to do it. Like, kind of like you said, the, I think, like, the, fa- the characters 
like Sam and Dina's characters and like the fact that they are in love and that's kind of the center of the story it's not like them coming out as like the storyline like it's not about the fact that they're a queer couple it's it's just that's just the couple of the movie and they're just they just exist and that's just the story and I think that they do it in a way that it's it doesn't like you said it's not like we have to watch this story this romance unfold with the backdrop of a slasher film it just fits in really effortlessly with like the plot and how it's weaved throughout the plot and I think that's why I think that's why it's just done so well like I think that's one of the really the the strengths of the movie is it kind of does keep yeah and I think they tackle the issues that like um would be tackled in any other like current day movie without it being like over the top where like yes she has a mother who doesn't approve but it's not some like constant thing that they're throwing out like hey look this person's gay um their mom doesn't like it look at this terrible thing it's just kind of like in the background as if like you know uh queer couples actually experience that in life and so i really respected how they handled um them being a queer couple without ignoring the issues that they would face yeah i definitely agree like i think that you know there is a bit of like clearly there's background of like sam's like fear and her like anxieties of coming out to her parents and like the reason that you know the movie starts with Dina like writing Dina has broken up with her but it's like writing her this like you know dear Sam fuck you also I by the way you. the development of like them leading up to introducing Sam so brilliant of like when I first started this I was like Sam is the dude obviously like I thought it was a guy and then Nope, it's like Lee Janiak is like, fuck your heteronormative brain. It's actually a girl psych. And I was like, oh my God, obviously. Yes. And they do a really good job of making you not really like think about it that way. Like you just kind of assume and then it's actually a girl and you're like, oh my God, I love that. But I think like, you know, that first scene and her with her and Dina are like, you get the background of Sam is clearly has some fears about coming out and is trying to figure out who she is. And I think that's instead of that being like the big storyline, it's just more of like, that's a realistic kind of like internal fear that she's having. And I think the, the actress plays that really well. And like Dina dealing with that as well of like, she's clearly out, but it has anxieties about that and some self-confidence issues. And so she's like, you know, they're playing off of each other really, really well um, with that storyline. And I think that, you know, the scene of with the mom being homophobic it's like one scene and we don't but we like we get the point and it doesn't need to be so constant like you said like I think they just do that really well and um yeah I just I think that you know the love story at the center of this really grounds the movies and and it kind of drives the plot because it's just like Dina just breaking this 300 year old curse to save her girlfriend (laughs) essentially perfect (laughs) it's lovely (laughs) um but obviously, lots of inspirations uh, go into this movie. Some of the ones that the director named are obviously Scream, Halloween, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, The Witch was like the main inspiration for the 1666 <laughs> yep, I can version, see it. <laughs> obviously. Um, and The Goonies was also a huge inspiration, which is kind of fun because it's, I can you see know, that. friends solving a problem. Um, but the atmosphere all in all, like obviously... They take a lot of care into how authentic each era feels. I think it was not quite, like, they didn't go, like, as ham as they did in The Witch, but I think you can tell, like, there's a lot of care taken into, like, how 
each era it feels like very authentic like you've I feel like I think Lee Janiak was probably in high school in the mid 90s and you can definitely feel that she was like pulling from her own high school experiences in the 90s version I wonder like what it's like to watch this as like someone in Gen Z who like didn't live through that because I I mean I know we were all born in the mid 90s but like it was still so fun and nostalgic for me to see that because that was still kind of like a lingering part of my childhood. But it must be so like interesting. I don't know, being well, younger I and watching it. <laughs> there's like this resurgence of 90s pop That's culture true. with Gen Z, which is really weird. Like they're dressing very 90s and stuff. And I'm like... Okay, I don't. I think that's a very like stylized version of how people dressed in the '90s, but I don't think that's actually how people dressed in the '90s. But anyway, they definitely picked and chose. Like, no, I don't see anyone <laughs> with like weird ass butterfly clips and like frosted tips. Like, let's bring that back too. Like, you don't. <laughs> it's a very the selective. Chokehold, the absolute chokehold that the hibiscus shirt had on my. Oh my god! Like, did I work at Trader Joe's? Like, what was I doing? <laughs> Was I an 11-year-old apprentice at Trader <laughs> I was like, this, but, this is it. This is fashion. <laughs> like, um, but uh, one thing that I thought was really cool was, so I, I was reading this, um, when I was reading about like the process of making this movie, Lee Janiak, the director, said that when they were, she was doing scenes, um, mostly for for part one and mostly with Dina and Sam like when that when they weren't like vibe jiving with the scene and like giving her what she kind of wanted she would like play them a song that would represent the mood of the scene and be like this is how you should feel for the scene and and then they would go and do it like perfectly they'd be like okay I get it now and then they would go and like do it instead of giving them like verbal direction she'd be like this is the mood of the scene and like play them a song from the 90s that would like represent the mood of that scene and I was like, oh my god, that checks out. Like, Absolute gold. Oh, because the soundtrack gold. of this movie, by the way. Fire. So good. I mean, everyone who worked on this film is literally like a fucking genius. Like, I, I have no <laughs> yeah. notes. I have no notes. I have no notes. Like, oh my god, the soundtrack is, the soundtrack is so good. I, I'm obsessed with every song in this movie. Um, and it just, like, the how they, like, full circle it with the Pixies in the beginning and the Pixies in the third. Like, it's just... It's perfect. My favorite Pixie song comes on, and I'm just like, oh my god. And then the end, they play Gi- Gigantic by the Pixie. It's just perfect. Everything about the soundtrack is chef's kiss. It's it's great. But, um, yeah, so I think that's, you know, that's about it in terms of, like, the overarching, you know, genres of the movie. So I think we can kind of jump into the big themes that we see and kind of jump into our analysis. I think before we kind of get into the slasher tropes, there are some things that this movie does that is very fresh in terms of a slasher film that I haven't really seen done so well before. And I think one of them that um, that we see in this movie done really well is, you know, essentially the heart of the film is the theme and kind of the criticism of class disparity. Obviously, like, that's the main form of like tension and conflict between these rival towns one of them is literally called Shadyside one of them is literally called Sunnyvale so you can tell which one is gonna be more like you know diverse maybe a little bit more like blue collar as opposed to the other one but I think there's some really serious commentary on diversity class racism and and 
it you know the conduit comes from these two towns shady side killer capital usa sunnyvale sunnyvale happiest place to live or whatever so i think they do a really good job that we don't really see that in a lot of slasher films of like making this kind of commentary yeah i mean i think a lot of slasher films we see in the 80s are really critiquing this fear that like in the shrinking like middle class but i think this one what's really interesting you see it the most i think in part two is just this idea that when you're born into something like shady side it's really hard to get out of even though there's this belief that it's possible and I think that that was a really interesting way to kind of look at what is clearly the class disparity but thinking about it in terms of like it's really hard to move from the class that you're in upward even though that's very much the narrative that we're fed yeah I think that it's one of the few like you said few slashers that does tackle the issue really well and I think I would attribute a lot of that to I feel like when they were making this they were trying to make a good movie not a good slasher and so they really put a lot of detail into the things like the little things like um in the first movie um in 1994 they have um oh man sam's boyfriend um they peter they have peter driving this really nice old red bmw what looks like an m30 which would be like of the time that was like daddy's money car like that was the thing to have it was so clean and so like seeing those little things i was like wow it's something that you don't necessarily notice in the move in the moment but that's definitely something where it's like it really is creating the atmosphere of like i'm in the 90s this kid has money this is obviously his dad's money not to mention his like 90s butt part uh but it's the little those little decisions um, that I really respect because it, it highlights the class issue really, really well. I agree. I mean, I think from, from the get-go, like, in the first scene, like, you know, Maya Hawke's character, Heather, who died, like, gets Drew Barrymore in the, in the first scene, but she's talking, like, the reason she's working late is because her mom spent their rent and, like, gas money or their, elect, like, you know, their energy um, bill money on like scratch and scratch off tickets like lottery tickets so she has to work and she's in high school and she has to work double shifts or like the you know they talk about that at the you know the end of the first movie where um after the best scene of the first movie at in the the grocery store which is like fucking iconic and amazingly shot we, we we can break that down but when um si- uh, Simon and Kate R.I.P. was the worst death of all three of these, <laughs> these movies. Um, never gonna eat sliced bread again. Dude, that wrecked me. <laughs> that was like yeah. okay. I have so many feelings. So many feelings. I, I just like yeah. I mean, but we'll 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 break down that scene. But um, really quickly before we do, I think. You know, after that happens and they, you know, it cuts to them, Sam and Josh and Dina at the police and Sheriff Good is like, here's this, here's the thing. The the story that we're going to go with is that these two kids went on a drug bender and murdered a bunch of people and then killed themselves in this like crazy drug fueled like crime spree because that's what feels easy and that's what we're going to go with. And Dina kind of points out like, yeah, okay, like this one guy who's been supporting his entire family from the age of 15 who works double shifts and goes to high school and, like, supports a whole family. Yeah, sure, he went on, like, he succumbed to, like, the quick money of drugs or, like, this girl who's, like, an overachiever and all she wanted to do was get out of this town and she's super intelligent and, like, a basically a chemist because she's, like, a drug manufacturer. But, like, 
you know, yeah, like, go with that story because that's what's easy. Like, they can't escape their fate. And I think that really, like, really drives home that idea that, you know, there's some serious class disparity <laughs> issues going on. And, and it's it does feel like Ziggy points out in the second movie, like, you're cursed. If you live in Shadyside, you're cursed. You can't get out of this situation. And I think, you know, that that really is shown throughout these movies. But we can totally break down you know, unrelated to this theme, we can totally break down that, uh, that, uh, um, grocery store scene, because it's fucking phenomenal. (laughs) Yeah, but really quick, though, in terms of this class disparity thing, I really also like that they kept it a consistent theme throughout the movies, kind of showing that, like, this isn't a problem that just disappears, like, it's there in the 90s, it's there in the 70s, it's even there in the 1600s, and so I really like how they showed not only that, but that, like, it's a shifting problem, so, like, Back in 78 in the second movie, the town was still, like, Shadyside was worse, but not as bad. Like, people still had dreams of getting out. And then you get to 1994 in the first movie, and it's, like, everyone knows. It's just, like, you're in a bad spot. You're not leaving. So, like, you don't really need to try. Like, we don't have that overachiever sister who's, like, if I just work hard enough, I can get out. It's just, like, I'm in Shadyside, so... Yeah, I mean, the older sister that we see in 94 is Dina, who's, like, the most jaded person, who's, like, we're all doomed, like, shit's doomed. There's no point in doing anything to try to fix it. (laughs) And, like, that's just... That's the situation we live in. And and on top of that, for her, like, she's a woman from Shadyside who's who's gay and black. Like, it's, it's, like, even worse for her. Like, she's getting, like, the triple threat of the, of the disparity and, and is what she's kind of feeling. And, and I think Austin, like, pointed out to me, him and I were talking about this, um, a few days ago, but there's something important, like, to talk, to be mentioned about the representation of the black experience in horror film and, you know, looking past Dina and, like, Martin's character and how he's, he's it's very subtle, but how he's, because he's not really a character until, you know, a fully developed character until the third movie, but how he's treated is very, very bad throughout these movies. And, and I think, you know, we focus, like, Austin, you know, you pointed this out to me, but, like, you were saying, like, you focus so much on Dina that we forget that there's, like, some serious racism still being portrayed in this movie. Well, I think, like, all of this just really speaks to, like, the generational trauma that's, like, inflicted on the Shady Siders, and I think that's, you know, very much a lived experience for so many people. It's kind of, it feels very fresh and new to see that represented in that way for this film, where it is very clear, and I think, Austin, you did a great job just describing how you see that generational trauma playing out to the point where, you know, where we enter in 1994, everyone knows that they're doomed. And it's, you know, it's, it's this really scary place to be. And they're in a place where the adults don't care. Like there are no adults, adults basically that we see in shady side to protect or care for them. The adults they do see are from Sunnyvale and they're actively trying to like undermine and gaslight them that everything's fine, you know, or that, or that they are like less than. So I I think it's like super interesting to see it represented in that way. Yeah, I agree. And I think one thing that I just kind of came to mind now with how you guys were both describing this is I think why, like I was trying to figure out watching this movies of like why these, like we see these themes in other slasher films, but why they just hit really hard in this one. And I think this movie for me is the first one that these movies are the first ones that kind of like 
they don't just have these tropes. They actually explain why these tropes exist for these people. Like, why are these people this way? Like, why aren't these parents there? Why are these kids not, you know, relying on their parents? Why are they so jaded? Why are they so desensitized? Why are they so willing to try to find the killer and, like, save their friends? Like, it's, 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 it's not just, like, having these tropes kind of, like, thrown in the middle of this story and just you know, doing this kind of plot and checking off these boxes of slasher tropes, it's actually explaining, like, why these people are the way they are. And I think that's really fresh for a kind of, for a movie like this. And and to be able to kind of, like, flesh that out in full is, is really, really hard without kind of, like, overloading the audience. I think Lydia and I kind of, we talked about this with the craft and, like, kind of the message of that movie got so convoluted because they were trying to throw so many themes into it that it just, they weren't able to develop one of them, you know, in a full-fledged way, whereas in this one, they kind of, they all intertwine so well that it's it's effortlessly wrapped up and effortlessly developed, I think, which kind of makes it so fresh. Right, and I think also which, like, this is a general type thing. Um, I think that also helps with being able to bond with the characters. And so, like, what this movie slash series of movies does really well is makes these character- characters likable and similar to, like, you in the current day, which is great, but it makes it so that, like, new people can watch this movie. Like, the Gen Zers who have no idea really about these like classic horror movies and tropes and then the people like us who have been watching them forever and you're just like wow I see all these things playing but like you change it so well for the modern person that like I can still identify with these characters they're not some weird like ambiguous person that I'm watching like go through this it's like I feel like I could be this person so it makes sense yeah it's really relatable I think it kind of makes the themes like very relatable um I think, like, I think one thing that's also really interesting about that kind of, like, the idea, like, we have this disparity between these two, you know, Shadyside, Sunnyvale, one of them is wealthy, one of them isn't, but, and how everybody's, like, always, the idea is, like, you aspire to, like, even be a Sunnyvaler and move out of Shadyside, but we kind of see also how this, like, idea of, like, the perfect society, which is technically Sunnyvale, it doesn't work for everybody, like, it doesn't fit well like Sam's character is you know she the the beginning of the movie is that she has moved to Sunnyvale because her parents have divorced and her mom's moved there and everybody's kind of like you know you're a Sunnyvaler now like you did it you got out and they kind of resent her for it and she's you know automatically like starts dating the quarterback is a cheerleader or whatever but she she tell she talks about how she like doesn't feel like herself because she can't be accepted for who she is in that society and so it's not actually a perfect society because being chased by serial killer like undead serial killers with her girlfriend is like how she feels the most herself is <laughs> like how basically how she describes it and so i think it kind of does shed light and kind of critiques that idea of like okay, maybe this idea of this perfect society doesn't necessarily exist or look the same for everybody. And we can stop kind of pretending that it does and that you don't need to be this, like, sunny baler. And we kind of see that with Cindy's character in part two as well. You know, I mean, she doesn't really fit into Sunnyvale, but she pretends to be and makes her sister kind of resent her a little bit and she's losing the little bit of family that she has left. Totally. 100% agree. The opening and the closing... Um, and and the differences we see in in terms of the series as a whole, it opens and Sunnyvale is like this glorious place, 
um, their football team comes and they're still like terrible people, but like there's this veil that's, but it's that Sunnyvale is a great place. Um, but then we get to the end and we see the news kind of breaking down and showing that like Sunnyvale's not a great place. They can't agree. And so it like, it really highlights that society, um, uh, is kind of blind at times, even the society that's affected. And so I really appreciated how, um, we could see that throughout the movie changing and then we get to the end and it's like, oh no, we were right that Sunnyvale looks great, but it's still trash. Oh, I was going to say, I feel like that's also like that theme is very much reinforced when um, they're in the mall and they have the signs up that say like good is evil. Oh yeah. <laughs> good is evil. <laughs> but I feel like that's so much the vibe with Sunnyvale though, right? Cause it's supposed to be like the grass is greener on the other side. Like it's this amazing utopia, but I mean, underneath it all, like they're the most like bigoted and racist and like hateful people. So like on the surface, yes, it's beautiful and everyone's happy. But I think underneath there's like all of these underlying problems and they're the ones too who are creating the system that's then discriminating against all of these other people. Like they're benefiting from like essentially white supremacy. So I, I just thought that that was like a really cool way to kind of put it. And again, it's very like tongue in cheek and clever, but I think that's a big theme that we see in this film. Yeah, that line has so many layers. I think it's one of the best movie quotes of all time. Like an um, onion. <laughs> like, yeah. But I think they like, what's so funny, like you mentioned, like, yeah, there's so much underlying racism, you know, bigotry, sexism, class, classism, all this stuff in Sunnyvale. But people just like people are blind to what's so obvious to the point that the high school football team is literally called the Sunnyvale Devils. Like they literally tell you who the bad guys are like in the beginning and you don't really realize it because you're so blinded by this like whole thing. <laughs> like they are literally called the Devils. Like it's they're they're bad. Like they're terrible. You definitely want to um, be a shady side witch. Like be on the right side here. <laughs> be for be shady a witch. side. Yeah, it's it's just, it's, like, it's really fascinating, and I think, like, I think what's so interesting about Sam's character in that representation, I, I find Sam's character actually, like, when you actually look into it, like, quite fascinating. So, in, in the first movie, you know, she's the one that's kind of has, Dina has broken up with her because she's kind of hesitant to be, you know, pu- public about the relationship and is scared to come out, and and all this stuff and is not the one that's as forward because she's trying to fit into this like the Sunnyvale idea but when I think I find it really interesting that when you flip that in 1666 where 1666 is set in Union which is before Sunnyvale and Shadyside have like split into two towns it's one town called Union Sam is the one that's like forward with Dina and is the one that like makes the first move and is the one that's like you know first caught for witchcraft quote-unquote or whatever and Dina's the one that's like a little bit hesitant at first and things like that and I think that's like when you take that like pressure to try to fit in although it exists still it's that was such a part of like Sam's character development when you take that away like that you can you you can be yourself and I think that's the point of like Sunnyvale isn't great because it doesn't allow everybody to be who they actually are it's very much a homogenous for a specific type of like white heterosexual male (laughs) like society I mean it's you know it's kind of like in the witch like fuck the patriarchy (laughs) like that's you know the witch at the end Thomason she doesn't really have a choice she has to join this coven because she like 
she would have been accused of witchcraft because her entire family got murdered on a secluded farm. <laughs> like, she doesn't belong to a society that would accept her for what she wants and who she is. And and I think that, you know, we see that in the contrast between the two city, the two towns, like, so well in this movie. I mean, to be fair, I don't think she can really be herself in 1666 either, though. But <laughs> for, for different no, reasons. <laughs> no, she definitely cannot be herself. But I think, it, it like, for her own internal, yes. like, yeah, conflicts don't exist as much because... She just is like fuck. Even though she's like the pastor's daughter, I mean, she literally still can't be herself because Dina or Seraphira literally got hung for those reasons. But we'll we'll get there. Um, but yeah, big agree. Um, also, in terms of the contrast, I really like how um, the director of photography or cinematography what made the decision to make Sunnyvale super bright. Um. And shady side, very dark and grungy outside of 1666, where they're a combined town. Um, and kind of flipping the script on, like, yeah, in every other slasher movie, it's always the killer, the terrible people who are, like, dark and grungy. Like, we can see it in Ch- Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Friday the 13th, um, even Nightmare on Elm Street. But here, you're, like, led to believe, like, oh, maybe the place that's so shiny and pristine is not where I want to be. Um, and I really like how that really reinforced the storylines that they were sending through by just like something as simple as color choice. I, I definitely agree agree with that, but I, that's a really good point. I didn't actually think about that because like every slasher movie is set in like a suburban middle class town, like where the victims are like suburban middle class people and the, the slasher, you know, character is like this outsider who's grungy and dirty and not, he's the other or whatever. Um, whereas this, it's like, that's not the case, but they definitely make you believe that it is for the majority of the movie. And it's always this, like, I I think what's really fat, like what they do so interesting and so well in this film is that there wasn't a point until the third movie when they revealed a plot twist that I thought that it wasn't going to be like Sarah fear the witch. Like I, I definitely was like, I know there's more to the story, but I definitely, I thought it was the 1666 was going to show us how she became a witch. Like, I definitely was not expecting the twist. That's what I thought, too. Yeah. And I just, I found that so well done. Like, the way that they did that. And then and then when they did, I was like, oh my god, duh. Like, obviously, this fucking sheriff has been gaslighting everybody this whole time overtly. Like, he literally does it to Martin, to his face. Like, he frames him for tagging the mall and was like, nope, they're mine. Like, he literally tells him, he's like, no, they're my cans. What are you going to do about it? But he's, like, gaslighting everybody into thinking he's just, like, this nice sheriff. And, you know, you root for Nick the whole time. You're like, oh, he's just whatever. But it's only with, you know, it's only with Martin that he actually is, like, really bad. Like, with everybody else, he's not, like, terrible. But he's kind of just, kind. Of, you kind of just think he's, like this unwitting person and then we get to know him more in in 1978 with Ziggy and you think like you know okay this is a good guy he just is like under a lot of pressure to do the family business whatever but no like that's not they tell you who he is the entire time and I don't know I mean like Austin did you I don't know if you maybe like knew (laughs) there was gonna be a twist but I I definitely did not like I definitely was surprised so I did not expect it whatsoever. I was definitely in the group of people where it's like, oh, Sarah Fear is the going to be the cause of this and, like, why everything is shit. But then having got through the twist and then later rewatches, I realized that, like, they were putting nuggets in our face not to trust the goods the whole time. Like, the opening scene where we 
meet Sheriff Good and he's talking to the football teams, like you look behind him and every single sign there says good insert business here, good insert business here. So it's like the goods control the entirety of this town, but I didn't see it because I wasn't paying attention to the background nuggets of like, you know, this guy might not be uh, the most trustworthy there. I was just like, oh, typical small town sheriff is just trying to be a good guy. And then they slapped me in the face with like, hey, Austin, you're actually an idiot. And we're looking at the criminal the whole time. Way to go. Agreed. It's it's brilliant, like how they do it, I think. And it really makes you like after you see the ending, it really makes the first scene where he shoots Ryan Torres in the head like hit different as well. (laughs) I was like, oh, my God, it's like one of his own monsters. Like he sacrificed his own monster. It's like, damn. (laughs) makes it hit so different but like at the same time he knew he wouldn't die so like he knows that it's not like a sacrifice and so i just uh so well they in this movie series i feel like they take everything that horror movies um from back in the day tried to do by making a billion iterations of the movie so like for example, with Halloween, we're seeing them trying to give you feelings for Michael and make you, like, sympathize and empathize with him as a killer. Whereas this movie, they're just, like, from the get-go, like, empathize with people who are in a bad spot right now. And I think that worked really well for them. And it's, like, a really good piece of, like, overall horror movie genre evolution that, like, I just, I really loved it. Yeah. I think, and obviously we'll... We'll get well, and I think that leads perfectly into you know like my favorite slasher trope, the final girl, because that is just the best part of this movie. But I think you know leading into that, what the director did very purposefully in this movie was I think she really was like, I want the people that are the heroes of this movie to be the ones that would have been killed in in typical slasher movies. It's like the outsiders, the people that you would expect to die, the people that wouldn't be surviving an actual slasher movie are going to be the heroes of this movie and are going to be the ones that make it out alive. R.I.P. Kate and Simon, obviously. I really, like, they did them really dirty. But, yeah. That, God, that scene. And I just, when they killed, and then when Simon sees her, I was not expecting him to die either, and he did. It was terrible. But Kate's death was awful. I was literally watching that, and I was like, that's not she's gonna get out of this. I was like, like no, no, no. <laughs> I was like, no, no, girl, you got this. Like you're you're fine. And then it was like, oh no, no. And then they show it and you're just like, oh my god, and then the end is just the slices of and then she has the frosting on her face. I it's feel terrible. like very rarely do I like audibly be like, what? No. Like, and that was one of those moments where I was like, this can't be happening. Like, this is crazy. Yeah, that was that was bad. I think the the one the one critique I have of this movie is that there are so many people that get stabbed and that do not die by getting stabbed. And I'm like, they're like, Ziggy should have died. <laughs> like Ziggy got stabbed so many times. You do not resuscitate somebody by giving them CPR after they've been stabbed that many times and then they survive. Yeah. I don't think that's how you, I feel like you, you have to show everyone compressing like all of her wounds. Like that's how she lived. <laughs> Yeah, and, like, Dina gets, full, like, the most silent stabbing at the end of the first movie where Sam stabbed. Also, was great ending to the yeah. first movie. Very unexpected. Was not expecting that. I think that was so awesome because it really tied back in the witch, like, idea that we had kind of thought 
you know, we got rid of, and the witch is this kind of, like, distant thing that is just, you know, this overarching kind of, like, cloudy curse over this town, but then it shows, like, there's, like, an actual person in a cave doing a thing, and Sam's name appears on the list of shady, shady side killers, and, um, and then she totally turns into, like, a rabid, like, (laughs) wild animal (laughs) at the end, which is hilarious, um, but yeah, I think, um, yeah, that just back to the kills. I think that that uh the bread slicer really did it for me. That was the, that was the worst one I think for me. I don't know about you guys. If you have a favorite kill, I mean, I think that takes the cake for me. The bread slicer was brutal. Oh, I think just as um like a shock value kill, the bread slicer is definitely one of the like most exciting, but also the axe uh axe to the head in that scene was so evocative of friday the 13th that i was like that's it that is the slasher kill because like this movie as a whole had great kills or this series as a whole had great kills but like that was what got back to quintessential slasher kills and like I loved it, and I it wasn't like too gory. It wasn't too out there. It was just like, hey, he's dying. Like, yeah, I totally agree. I think. Also, I think some of the most like I, I agree. Like, I think the the bread slicer is definitely like that one. Like, hit me the hardest, and I think it's definitely like the most like evocative one. But there are some kills in in nineteen seventy eight. Like when he kill, like murders an entire cabin of small children like you don't see it but that's like that is so dark the glasses yeah sitting in the pool of blood <laughs> it's like and then when alice got slashed after she found the hand i was like god damn it she was awesome it was really i loved that her she yeah but another question i have for you guys um and then we'll kind of go move on move through our uh other other tropes that we're going to talk about but did you think that C. Berman was Cindy. I definitely thought, I mean, they definitely lead you to believe that it's Cindy. Yeah, I did too. But I, one of my friends that I made watch this movie, because I've been spreading the gospel of Fear Street for the past three months, was just like, oh no, I definitely knew it was Ziggy the whole time. So I think when it comes down to it, like, after finishing, Ziggy makes the most sense as someone who was like, already kind of like shady side is it's a shithole like we're not getting out of this but leading up to it i got such big final girl energy from cindy like she's she's watching her sister die like that she just breaks after that she's the the go-getter who is focused on grades and and getting a job and getting out of shady side and then like i'm watching her sister die and i'm like this is it this is what breaks her and makes her become c berman the girl who lived and then all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, no, Ziggy's name just isn't actually Ziggy. And wow. No, and she's actually just obsessed the fact with David Bowie. <laughs> and I'm, I love that. I'm obsessed with that. <laughs> I definitely thought it was Cindy the whole time. And I'm, like, as soon as they showed her, I was like, oh, this is just going to be like how she totally got traumatized by her sister getting murdered and then turned into this like crazy, like, isolated hoarder or whatever and then that wasn't the case at all and I was just like oh my god because Cindy like also like not only did her sister get murdered her boyfriend axed everybody to death like like Tommy was her boyfriend so she had to watch all that happen and and yeah I just I think that like they did a really good job by uh 
not leading you to believe that it was Ziggy that was the survivor. Um, even though she definitely should not have survived that <laughs> the amount of time she Especially got with that. movies like Scream, where we are watching the boyfriend be the killer, and you're just like, oh, boyfriend killer, this makes sense. And I, I'd have to go back and rewatch them, which, like, we all know I'm going to do it again anyway. But something that I picked up in 1994 was realizing that before um, they died, everyone who died, they usually wore some shade of red or pink as, like, a main clothing item. So, like, I was starting to try and, like, figure it out. Now I have to go back and rewatch all of them. But, like, um, with... Oh, I I'm so bad with names. Kate and other boy who dies, who is employee of the month all the time. <laughs> and like he's wearing this bright red jacket, like as his like major piece of clothing. And then he goes and he dies. And then you have um, Kate who's wearing this like very fashion forward, but very bright pink coat. And then she dies. And so like, I'm now wondering, like, is it every time I see red, I need to assume that it's something bad? Because, like, shady side, their school colors are red and white. Bad. They're just bad. And every time we see red in this movie, it brings something bad with it. And, like, I don't know if it was purposeful, which, like, with this series, I feel like they didn't just make arbitrary decisions. Like, everything was thought of. And so now I feel like anytime I need to go back and just document instances of red, like, the... The moss covering the ground is red, bad. Shady side, uh, shady side boyfriend Peter, his car red, his school colors red. And so like, and then we also see Sam's metamorphosis throughout the series where like she starts out at shady side, red cheerleaders uniform. After that, she switches into gray hoodie with red, with red writing. And so, um, we're just watching red slowly dissipate. And then we get to the end where there's no red in the trees. It's like, it's fall. Leaves are changing. No red. It's all yellow and orange, which like arguably related to red. But like we start seeing less red throughout the series. Um, and then like it, for example, when we're in the mall, the neon lights turn to like pink and red when, um, when my hawk gets killed. And so I'm just like, wow, look at all this red shit. Wow, I never noticed that. And I guess that's, like, that's interesting also comparing that to 1666, which, like, obviously, besides all the, you know, the kids that get their, like, eyes gouged out, there are, there's, like, a pretty low body count in that movie compared to the other two. I mean, it's not, like, as slashery. It's definitely more about the Sarah Fear story. It's not about, like, a bunch of kills more, more than anything. So that, that's really interesting because you don't see a lot of red in that movie, obviously, because it's, like there wasn't that color for clothing back then. Um, well, shall we move on to the best trope <laughs> and the most kind of rich in this movie, I think, which is the kind of reimagining and the idea of the final girl. Um, because I think we can all agree that this, you know, the slasher trope, the final girl, it's a very big theme and prominent in this film. And like the, the, the freshness of the take on the idea of the final girl is 100% reworked in this movie and it's very purposeful and I think we were kind of talking about that you know throughout the the slasher movies of the 90s and the scream and I know what you did last summer and the craft and like who the final girl can be and even kind of in the witch which isn't a slasher movie but it has that idea of the girl that's going to come out at the end 
um, and how that kind of changes. And the this is kind of the pinnacle of that evolution, I think, and like who the final girl can be. Because I think the point of this movie is giving that voice and giving that you know opportunity to people that weren't necessarily getting that in Halloween. Like it wasn't, you know, the the virgin kind of girl that just was the friend that was logical and everything like in this one it's it's not not only is it a final girl it's final girlfriends first of all like that make it out of the end and we love plus martin we love it (laughs) um but dina is not what you would expect to be the final girl i don't think and i think that's really important um neither dina nor and i think you know we can this is a good place to kind of talk about the comparison of you know the the how much how ha- like the great evolution of who can be the final girl with like the Dina Sam relationship and also like the heartbreaking truth of like the Sarah Fear and Hannah Miller you know storyline as well because that's also a very real um, option that could have happened um, that I think was kind of the more like heart- hurtful and heartbreaking part of the story. Um, but I think, I don't know what your guys' take on that is, but in terms of, like, the evolution of the final girl, I think this is, like, a really good example of, like, who that can be, and, like, that can be not the person that is the typical, you know, one that we see in, like, Halloween or Friday, or the Nightmare on Elm Street. Well, I mean, I think we talked a little bit about this for I Know What You Did Last Summer, I think that was kind of one of the the newer, closer ones that we've seen to like more of like a well, like a, like she had flaws, but she was able to kind of redeem herself. Like she was given the grace to make mistakes and still be the heroine. And I think that that is even furthered here where it's like, you know, Dina is smart and she's scrappy and she's curious and she like, she isn't perfect and she, you know, is trying to navigate these really tough situations, but she's doing it in a way that I think is, makes her that, that like heroine that we look for in a film like this. And and I think it's cool again to see that evolution from, you know, where they have to be a virgin and basically they survive because they're a book nerd and they're smart and they're picking up on all these little things, but it's because they're not distracted by sex or interest in, you know, other characters but here it's like she's allowed to be like this multifaceted character. And I think that that's why we connect so deeply with her and with her and Sam is because we're able to have someone who is more representative of like, I think us as people where we are like messy and imperfect, but at the end of the day, it's still really beautiful. And I think we get that in this film, which is I think why we love it so much. Yeah, I definitely agree with all of those points. Um, I also really think that, um, what one of the things that this movie did really well is those parallel storylines. So we got to see both outcomes of what a normal house slasher movie would be. Like we got to see um, Sarah and Hannah die, and then we got to watch Dina and Sam live. And that I think it was really um, a provocative take on what we view as the final ending of the typical slasher. And so. Um, no matter which path you take, it's not what we would expect. He expects some final girl to survive, and it's either all of them survive or none of them survive. Um, and like you were saying, Lydia, I really respect that they made them real people. Like, they made mistakes, and they still survive. Like, it's fine. It's okay to make mistakes, and you'll still make it out. Um, and so moving away from this, I think, is kind of what the horror genre is doing right now, is like, hey, let's make it so that people can... Um, 
humanize our characters and make them feel like they could be in that position. And so seeing it through movies like this or even TV shows now, like um, things like Squid Game, we're, we're seeing teams of people survive um, and being happy about it and really liking where they're taking things, especially when they're people who you wouldn't expect to survive. So like, um, like you guys were saying, like I, the whole time I was like, which one of these people is going to survive? And for a while I was like, oh, Kate's going to be the final girl uh, because yeah, she's 100%. like out there and kind of, kind of wild. And then all of a sudden I'm watching her head go through a bread slice and I was like, well, that theory <laughs> was wrong. So yeah. I, I definitely agree, and I I think a couple of points that you make that, that are interesting that I want to touch on are, um, one, the idea kind of how you were like talking about with Squid Game is the idea that community is super important to the survival of these people, and I think what we see with Sunnyvale is it's so isolating for, especially like Sam is not herself, and she's not with the people that she's comfortable with, and she's pretty much alone, I mean, in Sunnyvale, and and. and you know, we see that kind of with Cindy and Ziggy as well. Like, Cindy wants to be, like, she's so focused on wanting to be this, like, other, in this other world that she's so, she doesn't fit in with the people that she naturally should be friends with. And Alice and Ziggy are there to remind her of that this whole time. And I think, you know, it, it kind of goes to show that, like, the community and the people that you surround yourself with are, are you know, especially in these movies where there's no adults. I mean, there is these groups of friends trying to solve these problems that are huge for them and, and, you know, kind of, you know, life or death situations and you have to rely on each other and trust each other. And I think the sense of community idea as well in 1666 is also so important. And we see that in, you know, the kind of theme of these like Salem witch trial era stories are communities turning on one another and that's when they're at their weakest. And I think we see that in 1666 when people start turning on Hannah and, and, um, Sarah fear is that's I mean they're they're totally alone and isolated and and they have no chance because they don't have anybody to help to help them essentially like even their friends that don't agree with them being hanged aren't going to do anything to stand up for them because they're so worried that they'll be next and because the community is so isolating and and I think that goes to show like how important that kind of community is to that kind of survival and so I find that I found that really interesting in kind of building that idea around the final girl and like the final girl having a community. She doesn't have to necessarily be the one lone person that survives. It can be her and other people and, and groups of friends. Um, but I, I think like one thing that you mentioned as well about, you know, we get to see these two versions of how the story can play out with Hannah and Sarah versus Dina and Sam and that kind of parallel of like, okay, we have this version where we can have the final girl come out at the end and have you know her and her girlfriend live happily ever after but then we can also have this kind of heartbreaking truth of like the wrongful conviction you know aspect of it and kind of these two people that are being persecuted for just loving each other they didn't do anything wrong but I think a lot of that storyline too in in the idea of the final girl what's so fresh about this is that it revolves around gaining acceptance for their sexuality and that kind of a thing and like I you know I think like the, a big kind of like joke, critique of this movie is that the scene in the first one where they're all literally having sex with each other while they're being chased by like all these monsters in the school is kind of random but I think it's important to show that like I think the scene is important I think it was good to show that like these people are 
when it comes down to it, they're like they're horny teenagers and they also just like want to have sex with the person that they are in love with and like let them do that even though they're being chased by a bunch of monsters. This might be a bit of a hot take, but I actually we were talking about like themes slash genres of this movie. I think this movie series is a coming of age story. Totally. I totally like agree. we see so many characters come of age in this movie and it's not just the main characters. We're seeing people like Martin's a main character, but like we're watching him and the Queen of Darkness like somehow become a real like relationship and bonding over like this shared interest on the internet, which like is this weird thing where like generationally, I know like for us, we were kids with tumblers falling in love on the internet (laughs) and then it just kind of like disappeared and now all of a sudden it's happening again because we're back in COVID times and like the story is just like that constantly repeated everyone's maturing and growing through this sense of community and it's like it's really reassuring i feel like to um, people of today that like we're finding that sense of community being the only reason that we are surviving as people like given the fact that you know we're so isolated with covid like we're at a time where community is of the utmost importance also, to go back to that uh, scene of full of teenage, horny, teenage I, loving. I think it's so um, funny. I it's love it. It's so funny. <laughs> and they're playing Sweet Jane by the Cowboy Junk. It's just perfect. Everything about that scene is so great. <laughs> it's so good. But then even in that scene, they somehow reference yet another horror movie with um, Employee of the Month Boy, who that's all I'm going to call him now because Simon. I'm so His bad with names. Simon, I think. Simon. <laughs> Um, but with Simon, that was uh, such a clear callback to Hannibal and Buffalo Bill looking at himself in the mirror, thinking oh, like, yeah, "Oh yeah, I, I'd fuck yeah. me." Oh, my God, That's you're all right. that was. And like, oh, my God, I, didn't even I was think like, about "Wow, that. this so is great. yet another horror trope." Everything in this movie turns into a horror—not a horror trope, uh, a reference to another horror movie, but not being over the top and still eliciting the feelings like these kids are fucked, and they're just kind of like. If I'm going to die, I'm going to at least rub one out really yeah. quick like, and have a good time. Because I think, like, yeah, it's easy to be like, okay, why the fuck did they put a sex scene in the middle of them being literally chased by a bunch of, like, fucking psycho killers? But I'm like, they're 16. Like, obviously, that's what they would do. Like, if this was real, a bunch of 16-year-olds literally, like, Dina and Sam finally getting back together, they're obviously going to try to, like, hook up. Like, it's you know, it makes sense. Josh is, like, in love with Kate. He's gonna shoot his shot before he dies. Like, it makes sense. Right, and, like, there is not a single a single person who can convince me that, like, any 16-year-old is not, at some random time, going to make the decision, decision with their partner. Like, we could have sex right now. Like, we... It happens on the daily. They're like, oh, hey, I have an exam at 8. You know, it's only 7.45. I can do this really quickly. They love to play with fire and like when Simon like approaches Ruby Lane when we first meet Ruby Lane, he's just he's like, like trying like to fuck the fucking night and he's just like, Hey, creepy girl crying on the side of the road, like he's you're like, right. Yeah, something's off, but you're still kinda hot. Like <laughs> I also So I realized that Martin, Martin, um, Simon is the character in every horror movie though that like runs into danger. Like he ran into danger there, but also we can look at the scene where he's taking a piss on the side of the building. Instead of turning away when he hears sheriff's lights, he turns directly towards the sheriff's car. Like, that's a weird reaction to have because everyone else would be like, oh, I need to hide everything. 
So every opportunity he has, like, he's like, let me be on the front line. And I feel like that's a really important character that we need. But, like, I also wouldn't put anything past that character to, like, hey, you know, I have a little extra time right now while I'm not dying I from monsters. I love that part where Dina's like, what the fuck were you thinking? He's like, I don't know, she was hot. She seemed normal. <laughs> and he's like, no, she's like, normal bitches don't bleed black fucking blood. Like, I don't know what to tell you. Oh, fuck. It's, like, the best line. It's so funny. Like, it's just this obvious, like, obviously she's fucking psycho. And he's like, I don't know. She was hot. What do you want me to say? Because it's, like, that's... But she's 16. 16. When you see someone hot and you're 16. What are you going to do? I also... Simon is such a king. Like, unrelated tangent. But the beginning when they're all talking to the police. Also, I find that scene very... Like, in terms of community, I find that scene so interesting because it's the one time... Where even the Shady Side and Sunnyvale kids are all in line, like all of them have an under, like uh, like an unspoken agreement that even though we hate each other, we don't narc on each other to the police. Yeah, snitches get stitches, even in Sunnyvale. <laughs> yeah, and then they're all like, "Yo, fuck twelve. That's all we're here to say." They're all talking to the police, and they're all like, "Oh, it was an accident, or whatever." And Simon's just like, "Suck it, pig." <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> I just... But also, I love their motivations there because we know that, like, Peter's motivation is, like, oh, I'm going to get my own revenge versus everyone else who's, like, fuck, I just, like, we're already in a shitty situation. I don't want to make it worse. And it's, like, once again, going back to these class issues where I'm, like, how is a movie covering such important topics but still making me laugh? I don't get it. Yeah, agreed. But um, I think there's one more, like, really important theme that we can talk about before we kind of wrap it up. But I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about, like, one of the most important things to to me. And I think probably Lydia, I probably Austin also noticed, is the idea of, like, feminism and the patriarchy in this movie. Especially in 1666. Fuck um, the patriarchy. So I, think, I think specifically in 1666 is where we see it. Um very reminiscent of the witch but i think the 1666 uh it's my favorite of the three for sure i all three of them i love very much i think 1666 is my favorite just because um i, I feel I like that, austin doesn't agree with i know you. i don't think he agrees with me but everybody can have their own favorite it's okay i just i enjoy watching that one a lot because I think it rep- these ideas one I like a wrap up like I like the wrapping the you know the, how the story ends but I think it represents these the ideas of like feminism and the patriarchy that I find very fascinating and I think the that we see that in the, the arc of that in the first two movies and it kind of culminates in 1666 so like I think similarly to The Witch, like I just said, it there's relatively a low body count, minus all the kids that get killed, but <laughs> we don't really see that happen. R.I.P. to the but, kids. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty. That was pretty brutal. But other like we don't see them die, but you know, their all their eyes get gouged out by uh, the first shady side killer, Pastor Cyrus Miller. It had to be a. It had to be a church man. I thought you were gonna say it had to be a Cyrus, and I was like, what? <laughs> Why? <laughs> um. But I think, you know, the, like, it, how we kind of, like, do the, um, the slow burn in The Witch, we have that slow burn in, in 1666, where there isn't relatively a low body count because the whole movie is 
we all know that it's leading up. We all know that Seraphir dies because throughout the that's the whole th- idea of the curse is that she gets hung and that she you know cuts her hand off and puts a curse on the town. So we all know that she dies some way or another. And sixteen sixty six's slow burn up to like her getting killed is really brilliant, and I think it it makes the ending of of the sixteen sixty six part of part three so much more brutal because it's so focused on that you know, the internal, like, not the gory, like, theatrical kind of slasher kill, but it's more of, like, this internal, like, why she's being murdered and how it's, like, a it's a wrongful conviction, I mean, when it comes down to it. And it, it I think it makes it probably the hardest kill, honestly, if we're going to talk about kills, it's probably the worst one, because it's, it it's the beginning in this community of laying the foundation of like centuries of patriarchal values and homophobia to come and be experienced by Dina and Sam 300 years later like it's all here is where it starts and like Seraphir is totally alone i mean she you know she gets killed she gets hung for witchcraft she confesses in by the way the best scene of the three movies like oh, the scene so where she good. gets hung wrecked me like I was I was was like unwell I was like when she looks at Hannah and Hannah knows that what she's about to do and just the look in Hannah's face I was like oh my god I was like acting like where is this girl that played Dina Johnson like where is her Oscar (laughs) like she is so good in this and then this in that scene so she confesses to save Hannah as well like she's doing it to save the girl that she loves which is like really heartbreaking But she's the only one that knows the truth. Like, none of her... It's not that her friends also know but can't do anything about it. Like, she is the only one that knows the truth. And she never did anything to, you know, become a witch. Like, she never practiced witchcraft. She... I mean, she's... I think, like, Sam said it, you know, in the scene where um, Seraphir goes back to try to, like, find her after Sam's been... Or not Sam, sorry. Hannah's been um, locked up to be hung but Sarah's like we need to escape and Hannah's like why like they think we're guilty so we are it doesn't matter that we're not like that's so real and I think that idea is so timeless and still exists today but I think you know that I her her hanging is I think the most brutal part and I think it just lays this foundation of like the idea of like the heartbreaking truth of like feminism doesn't always succeed and doesn't always persevere it's the patriarchal values like in this case laid the foundation for everything bad to come for the next 300 years and what we see in the culmination of like 1994 which is really intense and like really dark and hard hard to makes it the hardest I think what this film does really brilliantly is it takes these kind of similar to how I think Get Out does is it takes these really complicated social issues and it puts it in a way where it feels I think for people who haven't experienced that like you understand it more um and I think that what you get in that scene is she's betrayed by someone that she thinks that like that she trusts right it's someone that she holds as one of her really close friends who they have this really great relationship and in that moment it's like he's putting his own like self above her needs and her life and I think that that's very much like what sexism is and like the white patriarchy is feeding into a system that allows them to get what they want and to like not have to play by the same rules 
and and I think it does it in this like really brilliant and smart way where it's like I think it felt really relatable in a way that I haven't really seen it explained before. And I think that that's what's so smart about this movie is it really does make these things really relatable and like puts it in a different way than you've seen it before. But it is like that betrayal and seeing someone using this like dark magic basically to get whatever they want. And that's basically what it's like to be a white man, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I, I mean, to your, to your point, Lydia, I mean, that's like a brilliant point. And I think like to that point too, that's what's so brilliant and so different in this movie as opposed to other slasher movies about the unmasking of the villain because while he's unmasked for us at least you know in the end it is for everybody too but in 1666 we know it's Solomon Good and we know what the curse is but nobody else does I mean it's the people in the story don't know I mean he's not unmasked like the villain is there and I think that's kind of to your point like that's what it is it's not that easy to unmask the white you know heterosexual male who's often the the actual villain but you can't actually put your finger on it or put a name to it and I think that's what it's like and I think that's what's so brilliant about this movie is that it you know it unmasks Seraphir as not the villain and she's just an innocent kind of unfortunate um casualty in 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 Essentially, the whole point of this is that Solomon Good was sad that his crops weren't growing and wanted money. Like, that's where this whole thing came from. And made a deal with the devil to trade a shady side soul or a soul from Union for the prosperity of his family. <laughs> and that's kind of, you know, that's kind of the corruption that is at the root of the the entire town. And we see that manifested in that, like, weird wart thing. <laughs> it's like like vibrating I feel like that's where the fantasy element came in because I wish that they would have just cut that out like if I have a comment it's that was really gross and super distracting like we didn't need that yeah that was weird but I'm like I get like that was supposed to be representative of like the foundation of like the corruption or whatever but it was like you know I mean I think that's what's also really fresh about it like your to your point is like that's what it's like using basically dark magic to like get what you want as a white man but like unmasking the villain like didn't necessarily happen for the character for the people in the story as the way it did for us which is so frustrating because like we know who the bad guy is but it takes them 300 years to figure out who the bad guy is well and he's still perpetuating it like you know what i mean they're still continuing to sacrifice people in this other town and basically making them look like they went crazy and snapped when in reality it's like they're doing these things to profit and create a reality that benefits them so it's super so when she kills him and it shows like every death that he caused and made him like feel every single death that he caused me and so satisfying it's very satisfying it's incredible and i also love when they go to martin and they're like hey we need to kill the sheriff you want to come and he was like yeah let me grab my coat <laughs> like he was like down yeah. like immediately down <laughs> i love him I also really like that um, it, it highlights, like, it only takes one, one instance to, like, build a an entire society of, like, people who are benefiting off of this one, like, set of the patriarchy. And I really like that this movie series took um, a bunch of different takes on the patriarchy. So, like, of course, we have this main, you know, the patriarchy of, like, the goods and, and how it started with one and now their whole family is a seemingly in on it and benefiting and therefore all of Sunnyvale. But we also see like the effects of the patriarchy in that like we're what we're watching Dina and Martin's dad just not be around, but it's okay because he's 
a dad and it's it's fine in society and then we see like the effects with sam's mom where like even though she got to a position of power she still holds these ideals that were started and perpetuated by like the patriarchy like she still is super homophobic like uh and so not saying that like she's brainwashed and that like it couldn't happen just because she's a woman but like we we have to admit that those kind of things are like result results of the patriarchy and watching it happen and then like also watching times where like you're you have sam and she's just like something's off about this good guy you know like what why are you so like this and then just turning it off because she's like it's the white man it's fine uh was real heartbreaking to to watch happen and so uh moral of the story don't trust the patriarchy uh they ruin everything yes Fuck the patriarchy. We'll say it again for the people in the back. <laughs> I love how you're like, I mean, it's literally like, you're so right. Like, it's one instance to create this entire foundation of the patriarchy. It also takes one lesbian in love with her girlfriend to tear that shit down. <laughs> like, I love that. I was like, that this girl is not giving up on Sam, and I love it. <laughs> I was like, yes, Dina, you get your girlfriend. Well, like, I love it, but also... Also, I really love how the movie took it and put it in context. And they're like, yeah, they tore it apart and, like, acknowledged it. But then we have this ending scene where it zooms in on the the good household. And we see an entire family tree that, like, we don't know the members of. And we have his family being like, we never knew that he was this corrupt person. It's like, damn well you knew. Which one of you is about to take over? Like, I know someone. One thing that, so when I, that ending scene is really, really interesting when Sam and Dina like emerge from the cave and they're like so dirty yeah. and they're in this covered in blood house. But I was like really worried that they were gonna, I was like, when I was watching that, I was like, you guys are leaving so much DNA evidence all, like all over this area where there's a dead body about to be found. And I was like really nervous that they were gonna get caught and arrested and it reminded me of, like, the scene that didn't make it into Get Out of, like, that would have been really dark. That would have, like, made the movie, like, way something that it wasn't supposed to be. Of, like, the ending of Get Out that Jordan Peele wanted was that he the guy would was going to get caught by the police and then charged with the murder of this entire white family. Which is bleak, albeit, you know, more realistic of what probably would have happened. But... I think I was nervous about that in this movie, too, when they emerge from this cave and they're just, like, covered in blood and they're, like, in this white house putting their bloody footprints everywhere and they, like, emerge outside and, like, all the neighbors are like, what the fuck? And I was like, oh, my God, someone's going to call the police and these girls are going to be arrested for Nick Good's murder. I mean, like, that's what I thought. But I'm glad they didn't go that route. And I think that, you know, it goes to, um, just goes to show that, like, there can be there can be a way to take it down. I think, and I, what one like kind of 100%. final point though, like just to go to your point on the parents and that theme of like parents being absent and terrible in slasher movies. I think this movie kind of takes it to another level in that not only are the adults terrible, they're literally the bad guy. Like the adult, the police, the person that's supposed to be protecting the society is the is the villain in the movie and I don't think any other slasher film has quite taken it that far yet and I think that's super important in this one I think it's important that they did that because that's the reality of society today for a lot of people and they also use the police force to like reiterate the point of like you can't just be the guy who doesn't know what's going on so like 
you have shitty sheriff too who's like inflaming the problem because he doesn't understand and he's just using like his position of power that he got uh from being typical white man and like i feel like that's a very good commentary on like how we encounter problems today and like how we're constantly trying to survive and you always have that one barrier that's like you know i don't really know what's going on but i'm just gonna keep the status quo and keep going yeah yeah, well, um, I think we kind of covered all the all the big themes. All in all, I think this movie is, like, really... Obviously, I love it. <laughs> I mean, it's, like, I think it's one of my favorite trilogies ever. It's, like, three of my favorite movies now. And I think it's also really important to the evolution of, like, the horror suspense genre as well. We can kind of see it as a pinnacle of, like, where the genre can go in those tropes and how we can actually, like, maybe not keep doing them in a way that's, like, harmful for a lot of people, but maybe give them a fresh take and kind of turn them on their head in a way that like is more relatable for a lot of people. And, you know, I think in terms of like filming techniques, there's a lot of really, really good, you know, subtle, I think things that she's pulling from a lot of directors from the past, obviously Hitchcock being one of them and in the idea of like suspense and the evolution of that kind of genre that he was so influential in. And we can see all of those influences in this movie, but I mean, why these movies, why do they resonate? I think they just, like we were talking about, they, they have these themes that we've been seeing in these slasher movies and in, you know, this evolution of horror that are so universal. And I think they do it in a way that keeps it fresh and, and relevant to to a lot of gener- generations. Yeah, I mean, I think you put it really well. Like, I think horror films hold up a mirror to society. Like, I think they're usually not very well critically received, but I think that they do something really unique and that's really look at what are the fears facing our societies or what are the things that are really inhibiting our ability to kind of live these aspirational lives. And I think we see that in Fear Street in particular. And I mean, I think that there's just something so special about a genre that can make fun of itself and be comedic and campy and gross but still have these like pretty hard, like heavy hitting social critiques. And I, I think that that's why we love them so much, or at least why I do. But Austin, I'm interested to get your thoughts. <laughs> no, yeah. I like, I have total agreement with all of those things. And I think like it's a really good uh, series of movies to just move the needle forward for horror. Um, while still, like, paying respect to all the classic ones. Like, we talked about some of the movies that, like, they um, directly are quoted as, like, saying, oh, yeah, we reference this, but in looking at the movies themselves, it's, like, we see it in so many different avenues at the same time. Like, yeah, we see um, Friday the 13th with, uh, you know, campy killer, killer guy, but, you know, we also see it in, like, this weird, um, like unmasked killer who like we're still trying to figure out who it is because like in friday the 13th we know like who it is per se like we have a name for the entity but like we don't actually find out what they look like for a long while and then um we also just have like subtle references like uh ice cream man killer is wearing like a very similar jumpsuit to michael myers and uh it also references this really old movie where an ice cream man is a killer, but it also references this Shudder film where the these kids have to, like, bring this ice cream man, like, pieces of body to get ice cream. I, 
it's just like so many references to so many horror movies without. I want an origin story for every single killer mentioned in Fear Street. Like, where's Ruby Lane's movie? Where's Young Billy Barker's movie? Is <laughs> what I want. To know. Right, like it's all there, um, and I I really love these movies. They were my first ten out of ten, which is for me. I'm like a my average is probably like a seven, seven and a half for movies. I very rarely give out 10s. I think the last 10 I gave out before this was Parasite. So, like, it's fairly rare. Um, but this was an instant classic for me. Like, I started trying to find memorabilia already. I was like, I need to, like, immortalize this series of movies. Like, I don't see horror being done like this just about anywhere. Like, even with, you know, um, Jordan Peele, he's, he's tackling important social issues. But, like... They're very much movies that you go into expecting to tackle uh, social issues. But this was just like, you can watch it for the social issues. You can watch it to just watch a horror movie. You can watch it to watch two girls make it through life together. Like, it's just a really great series of films. And, like, I think even with all the hype, they are still underappreciated. Everyone needs to rewatch these movies. I want to rewatch them right now, so... (laughs) I yeah I agree I, I absolutely love these movies I think they're actually my new comfort movies to be honest like I put them on and watch the chaos ensue and it'll de-stress my day to be honest I think they're really good and they're so fast-paced that you're like never bored watching them I mean you know that's kind of a you know, low-hanging fruit in terms of film critique but I think that's an important one for people that maybe don't want to watch a movie for just some like elevated sophisticated reason like these are just really fun movies to watch um yeah, but I think that's kind of um, all I have to say. I mean, that's not all I have to say, but I think it's about enough for now. Uh, but that kind of, that rounds out our spooky season special for October. But Lydia and I have liked this so much, so don't be surprised if we just honestly continue doing this. We've been this having so much fun. <laughs> yeah, we so we might it's just so good. be we might just be continuing doing this for a minute, but. Um, I think that, you know, that was a good kind of evolution of horror and this is a good one to kind of end with because it does have everything in it and kind of encapsulates everything we've been talking about this month. Um, but Austin, where can people find you? How can people support you? <laughs> is there a way people can support me for you? <laughs> yeah, you can find me on uh, Instagram at Austin K. Adams, A-U-S-T-Y-N k-a-d-a-m-s um and same thing on twitter um i actually have a lot of twitters because i don't know why but it's just austin cooks austin reads uh those kind of things uh austin watches is where i talk about all my like movie opinions um there's not a ton of tweets but like you can go there if you want you should tweet more (laughs) i don't know uh and in terms of like support just watch this movie man like support lee janiac because she deserves it um but yeah i think that this is the perfect movie to get into horror um outside of like old movies this is a perfect movie for you and your friends to sit down and watch without being scared uh but enjoying horror at the same time so you know just get out there support your local uh netflix run movies like this uh and it's great that's how you can support me yeah well thank you so much for coming on and being part of this episode we're really happy to have you i was really happy to have you since you were the one that 
peer pressured me into watching these and, and, and ruined Lydia's life forever because I keep talking about them. You also, I was supposed to tell you thank you because you are the reason that I watched them, which made my, made my friend watch them because I made her watch them and it actually got her through a breakup. <laughs> so, oh my God, yes. <laughs> yeah, so she, I told, when I, she's obsessed with, uh, with these movies and she's like, tell Austin, thank you. I don't know who you are. But you're welcome. Uh, these movies get me through a lot, so. Austin, I feel like you have, like, a, a Fear Street, like, multi-level marketing scheme. Like, Sara's, like, one of your top recruiters. <laughs> okay, so here's my thing about these movies, right? Um, I generally, like, keep my movie opinions to myself for the most part. But this was so astounding to me that I felt like I needed people to watch this. So I had someone to talk about, uh, talk about it with. And so, is it a multi-level marketing scheme? I don't know. But have all my friends and my parents watched this set of movies? Maybe. Uh, you tell me. Do you want to join our cult? It's here. Yeah, because all we do is talk about Fear Street. <laughs> um, but, yeah, thank you for being on here. It was really fun to talk to you and get your take on these movies. Lydia, where can people find us? What can they do to support us? Wow. Well, you can find us on Instagram at Hitchcock Happy Hour. We drop new episodes every Monday. Well, and we've been doing two this month, but we won't be doing that anymore because it's a lot of work. And then if you really want to support us because you love us so much, you can rate, review, and subscribe. Um, That means so much to us. We love hearing what you guys think about the podcast, and it's just great to see you guys engaging with our content. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. It was lovely talking about these movies. We'd love to hear what you guys think. Happy Halloween. This is dropping on Halloween. And um, until next time, cheers. cheers. Stay spooky, friends.